Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata. The January 6th committee putting out more new witness testimony tonight, stuff we have not heard before including how Mark Meadows allegedly burned documents and how much talk about QAnon there was in the White House. Also tonight, the question thousands of angry, stranded passengers are asking at this hour, what's going on with Southwest Airlines? Why are they subjecting travelers to so much chaos? How will the airline make it up to those passengers? And the Supreme Court allowing that Trump-era border policy to stay in place. That's the one that sends migrants back to Mexico to wait for their asylum hearings. So what does this mean for the mess at the border tonight? Will it change anything? And whose responsibility is it to fix this? We have a lot to talk about tonight. But let's start with the new transcripts from the January 6th committee and CNN's justice correspondent, Jessica Schneider. So tell us what's in these, Jess. Allison, there are a lot of new details here, particularly because one of these transcripts is Cassidy Hutchinson's final deposition from June 2022. That was actually right after she had fired her Trump world attorney, and her new attorney was letting her correct the record and really tell every truth to the committee. So first off, she told the committee that she saw Mark Meadows burning documents in his office fireplace around a dozen times, which she guessed amounted to about once or twice a week, all between December 2020 and January 2021. And she says at least twice she saw Mark Meadows burning documents after he met with Republican Congressman Scott Perry. Perry, meanwhile, he'd been subpoenaed by the committee, but he never complied. Then there's another account that Hutchinson says Mark Meadows actually told White House staffers during the transition that they should keep a close hold on their meeting. So she says he put it this way. I remember him having a meeting with Oval Office saying, let's keep some meetings close hold. We will talk about what that means, but for now we will keep things real tight and private so things don't don't start to leak out. And Hutchinson expanded upon that. She said that these meetings were essentially kept off the books. They were out of the Oval Office diary. Essentially, you know, there'd be no record of these meetings. So Allison, between this detail and also Hutchinson observing Meadows burning documents, a lot of questions, a lot more tonight now that this transcript is out about what exactly Meadows was trying to hide and Allison really who he might be trying to protect. Those are excellent questions. Also, how about all this QAnon stuff that has come out? I mean, how much QAnon crazy talk there was in the White House around the president. Yeah, it seems like there was a lot because Hutchinson, she talked about these multiple conversations within the White House where all these people seem to endorse these QAnon conspiracy theories. So she said that Mark Meadows, for one, brought it up. Also, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene made mention of it. And then she actually said that she had this exchange with the White House trade advisor, Peter Navarro. She said, at one point, I had sarcastically said, oh, is this from your QAnon friends, Peter? Because Peter would talk to me frequently about his QAnon friends. And he said, have you looked into it yet, Cass? I think they point out a lot of good ideas. You really need to read this. 
make sure the chief sees it. And then Hutchinson said she later replied to the committee, you know, I did not take this as sarcasm. You know, Allison, um, Navarro has since been indicted for refusing to comply with subpoenas from the committee. But really, Cassidy Hutchinson here, now that we have four complete transcripts from her, we are seeing a ton more details um, revealed to the committee than we really previously knew. And that begs the question here, you know, she's cooperated with the Justice Department. You know, what might she lend to their investigation and what potential criminal charges based on her accounts could that potentially lead to? That's something we're going to be really keeping an eye on into the new year, Allison. Every new revelation contains surprises. Jessica, thank you very much for all of that reporting. I want to bring in now CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen, counterterrorism analyst Phil Mudd, political commentator Maria Cardona, and Olivia Troy, former Homeland Security and COVID task force advisor to Vice President Pence. Great to see all of you tonight. Norm, I'm no lawyer, but burning documents in your office fireplace doesn't sound that great. Burning, uh, you know, dozens, I think was the word. And so, I mean, but, but of course, it's hard to know what Mark Meadows burned. So how legally damning? Uh, well, Allison, it's quite legally damning when you're looking at uh, potential obstruction of justice and you have these badges, these indicators uh, of uh, trying to keep things secret. It's not just burning the documents. A couple of those episodes were after Meadows met with Congressman Scott Perry. We know he's in the Justice Department bullseye, Allison. They seized his phone. That's another bad sign. And then there's keeping the meeting secret, keeping him on the QT. So there's a lot of evidence here uh, that is uh, troubling, and it adds to the accumulation uh, that suggests uh, crimes were committed. Meadows is one of those DOJ is making, uh, receiving criminal referrals from the committee mm-hmm. on. And now we know more. Why? Olivia, um, it's interesting. It came out tonight that Cassidy Hutchinson wanted to clarify or, I guess, um, expand on, elaborate on her original testimony. Because first, she had a Trump supported Trump-endorsed lawyer. And then she thought that she was getting bad advice from that lawyer who basically, according to reporting, had told her to not remember certain things. So then she contacted the committee and wanted to clarify some things. So here is this clarification. So the, the committee asks her, on page 43, lines 9 through 11, you were asked, was there discussion about it needing to happen, it being the rally, before the joint session started at 1 p.m. on January the 6th? You said then, not to my recollection right now. You want to clarify that. Ms. Hutchinson says, after reviewing my transcripts and thinking further into this moment, I do recall conversations about having the rally prior to Congress convening on January 6th to certify the results of the election. The committee asks, do you remember why? Cassidy Hutchinson says, at the time, I understood that to be, I understood the reason to be the president's desired movement to the Capitol as Congress convened that day. And then uh, Liz Cheney asks her that the president wanted to be at the Capitol in time for the joint session to convene. Mm-hmm. And Ms. Hutchinson says, that's correct or around. And of course, now we know what happened at the Capitol. So, I mean, having been in the administration, what do you see when you read through and hear about these transcripts? Yeah, look, I think uh, Cassidy wanted to tell the truth and she was being sort of confined by these Trump people around her who were basically sort of, you know, keeping her from doing so. And she felt that she, 
needed to come forward and really speak truthfully about what had happened here. I think one of the more striking things is uh, that conversation that she has with Peter Navarro. And I just want to state this because I actually personally have had those types of conversations with Peter Navarro earlier in the year in 2020 in regards to the COVID pandemic and the Q conspiracies that he would bring in trying to give them to the vice president at the time. And I used to intersect them and I used to take the documents out of his hand, believe it or not. And he would say to me, but Olivia, have you looked into this? Have you looked into hydroxychloroquine, all these things? And I would sit there and I look at him and I think like, if this actually comes out of the vice president's mouth, or we actually send this out to the American people, you could kill thousands of people. A lot of these theories were just flat out random false conspiracies. And to, to see Cassidy talk about that and say, this was a regular occurrence where he would drop these things and walk them into Mark Meadows during her tenure, I can speak truthfully that I dealt with that as well. And I know because I, I, I remember Mark Meadows walking some of these theories in to the vice president's office where I would then have to counter the situation. And as you can imagine, as a Homeland Security or COVID task force advisor at the time, I mean, this is so out of the realm of the possibility that this is something that's happening in the West Wing. This is something that I've never dealt with in my entire national security career. Oh, my gosh, Olivia, that's incredible. You really had your hands full running interference so that it didn't make it to the vice president's desk. And Phil, that leads me to you. I mean, the QAnon crazy stuff that was floating around the president between Marjorie Taylor Greene. So some of these transcripts show that she was, you know, babbling about it. And uh, Peter Navarro, how gullible are these people to fall for these conspiracy things and then try to and then talk about them with the president of the United States? Boy, this tells me more about or at least as much about 2024 as it tells me about what happened years ago. My point is going into 2016, 2017, when President Trump forms a new government, you look at the executive branch and whether you like President Trump or not, you look at the secretary of defense, General Mattis, you look at the secretary of state. You look at uh, the the counselor to the president, uh, General Kelly. These are serious people who talk about guide rails around the president. As the presidency proceeds under President Trump, you get people like Peter Navarro who are talking about QAnon, which is nuts. My point about 2024 and the candidacy of President Trump going into the next election is if you take out people like the president had in 2016-17 who bring rationality into the Oval Office, and you assume that the next round will be the Peter Navarro's of the world, you tell me what's going to happen during those four years. I'm not looking forward to that. And by the way, Cassidy Hutchinson, she didn't want to do that. A lawyer told her, go in because you have legal, legal jeopardy. I don't believe her for a heartbeat. What do you mean? What, what do you mean, Phil? You, you, that you don't, what don't well, you believe? Because we're saying that she wanted to go correct the record. Let me tell you what happened. A new lawyer came in who wasn't paid by the Trump people and said, They've done, the committee's done hundreds of interviews. They have thousands of pages of transcripts. If you don't correct the record, you're in legal jeopardy. I don't think she did any of us a favor. I think a lawyer said, you better speak as that whether you want to speak or not. You better speak because you might be in legal jeopardy if you don't. I don't trust her for a heartbeat. But I mean, she did end up providing. I disagree. Yeah, I speak to the. What was your choice? Uh, she could have yeah, said that uh, she well, didn't remember things. Aspect. But go ahead, Olivia, you know about this. Go ahead. Well, I understand the legal aspect of that. And yes, she probably got counseled on that and thinking of the implications of that. I think we need to all take a step back and understand what we're dealing with here in terms of the intimidation and remind ourselves of what she also says, that these people were going to destroy her and ruin her life because she watched this firsthand happen to me 
when they came out and attacked me, when they went on public TV and tried to destroy me for telling the truth about what was happening, she was inside the White House living that. So I think that's also part of it, right? It's just the fear of it. I'm not discounting what Phil Mudd is saying completely, but I just have to say, like, that is also part of the equation of here when people come forward and try to tell the truth as part of this whole sort of mob-like Trump administration that many of us had to live, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Maria, I want to get to you uh, for a second because there's more that has just been released by the January 6th committee. And this is from Judd Deere, who was the deputy press secretary. And he says something that we did not know before, which is that President Trump was about to do the right thing and concede. But then I guess, I don't know, I guess his, he changed his mind. But here's what Judd uh, Deere says. In the week after the election, there was gossip around the building that he, meaning Trump, was considering conceding, even strongly considering inviting the president-elect and the incoming first lady to the White House. Now, he calls it gossip, but I think that we had had reporting that it took a while for President Trump to fasten upon his new plan to say that, you know, the big lie and that there was all sorts of um, fraud. I don't believe it, Allison. I, I really don't. Because one of the things that really sticks out from all of these transcripts and from the lurid detail that we have gotten from the January 6th committee reporting from the very beginning is that this was not something that was done on a whim. This intention to overturn the election and to lie about winning the 2020 election and that, that it was all a fraud that was committed upon Donald Trump and the American people, it was all very well, nefariously, maliciously planned. Not just the lie itself, but literally what to do when Joe Biden won in terms of making sure that either the vice president was not there to or was not willing to certify the election on January 6th, the fake electors plan. You don't do that if at some point you really have the intention of conceding and mm -hmm. of inviting your, you know, most elaborately vicious enemy that you have made during the presidential campaign over to the White House along with the new first lady. I'm sorry, maybe it was gossip from people who were trying to push Trump into that direction, but I don't believe for a minute that he actually really had the intention of doing it because the nastiness with which he did everything from the very beginning in terms of lying to the American people and still lies about it today, yeah. Allison, yeah. is not something that really comes from somebody that had the attention, intention at some point to concede the election and to invite the president-elect and the first lady over to the White House. Yeah, I, I, I would say that your skepticism is uh, well-founded <laughs> in terms of all of that. Um, friends, thank you. And stick around. I have many more questions for you on all sorts of subjects because the Supreme Court says that officials can keep sending migrants back across the border for now. But with desperate people continuing to arrive at that border every single day and the border being overrun, what does this change? What is the solution to our immigration mess? That's next. We have news on the border tonight. The Supreme Court ruling that Title 42, that's the Trump era border policy, it will remain in place indefinitely while legal challenges play out. 
It was initially set to expire last week until a temporary hold was ordered by Chief Justice John Roberts. This means that federal officials will be able to swiftly turn away migrants as they've been allowed to do since the start of the pandemic. This is a victory for Republican-led states that urged the high court to step in. President Biden said this tonight. Okay, so let's get to CNN's Leila Santiago. She's live in El, in El Paso. That's the border city that declared a state of emergency in anticipation of the end of Title 42. So what's happening, Leila? Well, you know, when you talk to the migrants, there's certainly a, a mood here of disappointment. I spoke to one mother, Allison, from Venezuela, said she escaped uh, as she was trying to flee violence from Venezuela and uh, made it up here. Her intention was to cross legally, but because of Title 42 was sent back and she and her two children, uh, one a toddler, crossed illegally um, for what she is hoping to be a better life here. Now, the officials here in El Paso are not by any means just waiting to see what happens next. They are continuing with some of their contingency plans. In fact, have two schools, two vacant schools that they plan to to have as shelters for migrants that are coming because on the other side of the border, there are a lot of migrants in Mexico, in Ciudad Juarez, that are waiting to come in. So let me show you what's happening behind me. I'll step out of the way so you can see we are at a shelter. This is near the church and there are a lot of migrants that are taken to the streets. I'm seeing old men, young men, children, toddlers, babies, Allison, that are uh, now under blankets on the sidewalks. Now, many of these individuals um, could go to another shelter. The city says they have capacity, they have availability with beds, but they are fearful. When I talk to them, they say, we don't trust getting on any sort of bus because we don't know exactly where we will end up. So this is an issue that the city is going to have to deal with, uh, despite the Supreme Court's decision and what has come of Title 42. But while this is uh, a win for those Republican states and Republican governors, and while it is finally a decision that many uh, have been waiting for just to see what the court decided, um, there is still very much a feeling of disappointment, um, uncertainty among the migrants and among the city officials sort of plowing forward regardless because they still know that they could see a potential surge at any time. Yeah. Allison. There's just all sorts of uncertainty at this point. Alayla, thank you very much for being there and for reporting. Let's discuss with Norm Eisen, Maria Cardona, and Olivia Troy, also joining us as CNN political commentator Scott Jennings. Um, Norm, what does this change? What changes tonight? I mean, the fact that the Supreme Court has sort of kicked the can down the road, there's still a migrant crisis tonight at the border, as Layla just told us. Uh, Allison, uh, the Supreme Court has continued uh, the... Um, Uh, Trump era uh, policy that is, uh, frankly, uh, heartbreaking. These are individuals who have come to the border. They have a right under U.S. law and under international law uh, to seek asylum. And they have been uh, turned away literally by the millions under this Trump era policy. It was supposedly based on COVID. We all know that's not the real reason for it under Trump. Uh, But despite the fact that uh, an order that was entered at the peak of the pandemic, those facts have changed. And the district court was right to strike this down. But we're going to be left with the status quo and this heartbreaking rejection of migrants 
for many, many months ahead while the Supreme Court decides. Yeah, I I hear you, Norm. I mean, Maria, I want to come to you because I hear what Norm's saying. It's obviously heartbreaking for people with families that are outside freezing in the cold right now and they've fled Nicaragua or Venezuela and the authoritarian regimes. However, let me just give you what the backlog is in the U.S. The U.S. is not equipped to handle this number. It's just that's a demonstrable truth. And here there's 1.6 million asylum applications pending right now. Mm -hmm. That is seven times more than the asylum cases in 2012. Mm -hmm. Three out of 10 of them are children. And uh, in El Paso alone, they're making something like 30, I can't remember, 3,500 interceptions a day. They say that they're overrun. And so I I understand that it's heartbreaking all around, but what is the solution? I'm so glad you brought this up, uh, Allison. Because those numbers that you just mentioned are heartbreaking because it does demonstrate that our immigration system is absolutely broken. But you know what happened under four years of Donald Trump? They proceeded to systematically dismantle and destroy any kind of legal asylum processes and procedures that existed. They proceeded to close off any known asylum legal Uh, ways that migrants could come and ask for asylum under U.S. law. They proceeded to cut off any aid to Western Hemisphere countries that were dealing with migrants who wanted to flee their countries and come to ours. They proceeded to implement a heartless, cruel, and inhumane policy that ripped babies yep. from the arms the, the, the of their separation, mothers. Yes. So what happens is now, when the Biden administration came in, they were dealing with a completely destroyed immigration system. You know what needs to happen, uh, Allison? Yeah, quickly. Members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, need to come together to fix this. The first thing that President Biden did in office was offer a comprehensive package of legislation that increased resources to the border by the billions to secure the borders. You hear that, Republicans? In addition to focusing on legal pathways, in addition to more asylum ways for migrants to come here legally. We need workers here. Let's do this. Republicans need to stop using this as an excuse to exercise their xenophobia and their racism. And let's get to to Scott in here, because that is true that President Biden did offer that up on his first day in office. Scott, uh, what is your response to this? I mean, you asked Maria what the solution was, and she spent five minutes whining about Donald Trump, who hasn't been the president for over two years. The reality is Joe Biden has failed. He's not been to the border. Kamala Harris, who's supposed to be in charge of this, has failed. The administration has been dishonest with the American people. The Biden administration doesn't want border security. If they did, they wouldn't be in court suing Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, who tried to put up shipping containers to block the Yuma gap in Scott, Arizona. Scott, I hear you. And I, I, not Scott, security. I, I hear you. The only reason I'm interrupting is because you say that the Biden administration has failed. Isn't it Congress? I mean, what do you want President mm-hmm. Biden to do? I want them to secure the border. I want them to How? support the border patrol. Ask border patrol agents if they feel supported by this administration. And yes, I want them to exercise some leadership. Not every single person who shows up here at our border is a refugee. I know that's the position of Maria and the Democrats and the Biden administration, but we can't take on the entire population of all of Central America and just say, well, these are all refugees. You said it yourself. We have a massive backlog 
We can't possibly process this. The Supreme Court today saved Biden from himself. And you'd have to forgive a judge for being confused about the Biden position, because one day they're claiming the pandemic is still going on to relieve student debt. And today the solicitor general is in court saying, well, we know the pandemic is over. So let's end Title 42. You cannot have it both ways. It's confusing and it's dishonest. Yeah. Olivia, there's obviously a lot of politics around this and there's a lot of frustration. But I just keep looking for the solution and I don't know what it is because Congress won't. I mean, Congress has failed administration after administration on this. It's not just Biden and it wasn't just Trump. Congress has not done anything about this. Yeah, and I'm listening to all of this and I'm thinking to myself, it's always been ping pong, right? I'm a person that grew up on the border. I grew up in El Paso. That is my hometown. They have shouldered this burden for years now. I've seen this firsthand. Um, yes, it's a tough issue. And I see ping pong. I see ping pong between Democrats and I see ping pong between Republicans as well. And like, great, go to the border, go and visit. I saw this during the Trump administration numerous times with Republicans going to the border, looking at people in cages like they were sitting animals and ducks. What did that do? Did we resolve anything? No. And then we talk about this migration crisis that's coming over and these people that are coming here. Not all of them are refugees. Not all of them need it. Well, yeah. And you also throw in that some of these people are terrorists crossing the border. I also had to diffuse that talking point because factually the intelligence community reminded people that that was just not true. But to all Thank of you. everyone's points, like Title 42, I mean, it was not meant to be a public health measure right. when it was enacted in the Trump administration. I know that for a fact because I've lived it. And the head of the Global Migration Unit at the CDC never signed off on it, by the way. They were blindsided. And I know this because I was in those meetings with Stephen Miller. And it was an anti-immigrant policy that it was enacted, bottom line. And it was rammed through, and it remains today. So I actually think it's actually very shameful that the Supreme Court had held this ruling because it is a mm-hmm. policy decision that is based on a fallacy. It's not correct today. And so all of these things, I think... You know, I think it is Congress. I think people need to come together instead of using migration and immigration as a political talking point from both sides of the House if you really want to get there. But I think there's no incentive when you can bust people around the country and drop them off at the vice president's residence on Christmas Eve and claim that as a win. And, I, you know, I was looking yeah. at that and I was thinking to myself, what, how would Mike Pence, what would he have felt like if somebody had dropped off the migrants at his residence when he was there as a Christian Right. To see them freezing in the cold like that. Is that OK? Is that where we are right now? Is this how we're looking at solutions to the migration crisis? Because I think if we don't actually start to have serious conversations, this crisis isn't going away anytime soon. Yeah. And cities you know, like El Paso, like my hometown, are going to continue to shoulder this. Yeah. Maria, I'm sorry. I, I, Maria, we have to. I'm sorry. We have, we're out of time and we have to move on. But okay. I think that you've all given such great perspectives. And Olivia, it's so helpful to have your insight from you having been in the room during all of this. Um, and yes, I mean, we will be, continue to talk about this because we're not clearly helping the migrants who are freezing right now, but we're also not figuring it out. So thank you very much, um, all of you. We do need to talk about this also, because if you're trying to fly somewhere right now, good luck. Thousands of flights canceled yet again today. And now the transportation secretary is calling out Southwest. We'll tell you what they plan to do about that. If you're flying Southwest Airlines this week, you may want to get comfortable. You could be waiting a while. Even with the weather clearing in much of the country, nearly two-thirds of all Southwest flights were canceled today. And look at this that we're about to show you. On the far right side of this chart, 99% of tomorrow's flight cancellations, tomorrow, belong to just one airline, and that would be Southwest. 
This evening, the company's CEO offered an apology and an attempt to explain in this recorded message. Our network is highly complex, and the operation of the airline counts on all the pieces, especially aircraft and crews, remaining in motion to where they're planned to go. With our large fleet of airplanes and, and flight crews out of position in dozens of locations, and after days of trying to operate as much of our full schedule across the busy holiday weekend, we reached a decision point to significantly reduce our flying to catch up. We're focused on safely getting all of the pieces back into position uh, to end this rolling struggle. CNN's Lucy Kavanoff is with some of the people still stuck in this mess. Unfortunately, our next available seats for rebooking are on the 31st and beyond. It's another day of travel chaos. Every flight is canceled, so I don't know when I go back home. Another day of flight cancellations, delays, and frayed nerves. Phone calls were busy. You couldn't get a hold of anybody. It's awful. <laughs> Exhausted passengers braving long lines only to receive more bad news. Because they said even if you go through this line, it might be up to New Year to get a flight. Travelers on Southwest bearing the brunt of the post-Christmas cancellations. Many stranded until the new year. The next flight that was offered was in January, and they couldn't even get us home back to Pittsburgh. Southwest CEO Bob Jordan warned of more tough days ahead, according to a transcript of a company-wide message CNN has obtained. While Chief Operating Officer Andrew Watterson said the airline systems were unable to match available crews to available aircraft, and it had to be done by hand. From what I can tell, Southwest is unable to locate even where their own crews are, let alone their own passengers, let alone baggage. Their system uh, really has completely melted down. And I've made clear that uh, our department will be holding them accountable for their responsibilities to customers, uh, both to get them through this situation and to make sure that this can't happen again. This is a deep failure of management not to have supported its IT infrastructure. So I don't know where my luggage at. The travel chaos leaving mountains of lost luggage. In Las Vegas, a sea of unclaimed bags. Some passengers told it would be days before they can get their luggage. Denver's airport leading the nation in terms of delays and cancellations. Passenger Nick Favaza has been stuck here since December 21st. I will never fly Southwest Airlines again, and I will tell anyone I know never to fly Southwest Airlines again. Why is that? What do you want to do different? I mean, you just can't leave people stranded for eight days and just say it's the weather when it's not the weather. And what a difference a day makes, Allison. Yesterday, the line for Southwest was sneaking around the corner. Very few people behind me right now, but it does not mean that Southwest's problems are over. You heard that apology video from the CEO, Bob Jordan. Uh, you know, he used a lot of words to basically say the airline's going to be flying at a reduced schedule for the next few days. He hopes to be, be get back on track before next week. But a lot of people aren't here, frankly, because they've given up and a lot of the luggage has yet to be reunited with customers. This is unfortunately going to be a vacation to remember for all the wrong reasons. Allison. You're so right, Lucy. That's the story of our next guest. We want to bring in now Monica Benavides. She is a Southwest passenger who got caught in a delay and cancellation drama during Christmas, trying to get home to Texas from Las Vegas. Uh, Monica, thanks so much for being here. As I understand it, you spent 11 hours on Christmas Day in the Vegas airport trying to get home. What was that experience like? 
it was just really um, hard. My father passed away on Christmas. So it was a very hard day to be traveling. And so I just wanted to be with family. And to just experience delay after delay was just uh, really heartbreaking. And But I mean, so many other people had it worse than I did. There was people that were elderly just sitting in wheelchairs and there was parents with small children. Overall, we were just trying to help one another and make the most of it, but it was just really an unacceptable situation. Well, we're really sorry to hear about your father, first of all. That sounds awful. You did send us video of the things that you were seeing. I mean, all of the people who were stranded, including, as you said, elderly people, and it was just, people were just like languishing there in the waiting room. What was Southwest telling you? We all got online to board, very excited. And then eventually we were just told it would be five to 10 minutes. And that five to 10 minutes became half an hour, became several hours. And we were just being told that we needed one more crew member. And then when that one crew member got there, um, the gate agent who was very kind and was trying to help, um, you know, just said that she had to call and wait on the phone, just like everyone else did to try to get us off the ground. so it was really hard for the Southwest employees and my heart goes out to them as well as the passengers because it was just an awful situation. It looks like it. I mean, that video that you sent us, it's just a sea of people. Not, nobody going yeah. anywhere. It's just people as, as far as the eye can see. So ultimately, your story is that it took you 26 hours to get from Vegas to Corpus Christi back home. And I know that you want to be compensated somehow by Southwest for the hotel that you had to rent, the different transportation that you had to take to and from the airport, the food you had to buy. How much, how could, what is the price tag of everything that you endured during this ordeal? I mean, luckily for me, I think it's going to end up right around maybe $300 to $500. But I have family members that are spending upwards of over $1,000 to get home from various destinations. And so the stories will vary but overall, it's just a really, really unacceptable situation that Southwest keeps using the weather as a scapegoat for their outdated scheduling software when no other major U.S. airline has had the level of disruption that they have. Well, if Southwest can get away with paying you just $500 for what you endured, uh, that's a bargain, I would say. But we'll keep in touch, Monica, and find out uh, what happens with you. Take care of yourself. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. Okay, so what's it like to be dealing with thousands of angry customers calling you out? Well, the head of Southwest's flight attendance union is going to join us next with their frustrations. So why is Southwest Airlines having such a travel meltdown? The other major U.S. carriers got back to business fairly quickly after the snowstorms. Southwest has been around for more than half a century, and it used to pride itself on its top ranking for customer satisfaction by the Transportation Department. Lynn Montgomery heads the Flight Attendance Union for Southwest, and she joins us tonight. Lynn, thanks so much for being here. I know it's been a busy day. What has this this meltdown been like for the flight attendants? It has been absolutely horrific. The most despicable working conditions that you can imagine, you know, flying during the holidays, it's already a challenging time, even on a normal year. It's filled with busyness and wanting to be with your family and hustle bustle that creates a lot of stress. So it's really, really difficult with this happening. And so when you say despicable flying conditions, what what is it like? I mean, are they stranded at various airports? We just heard from a passenger who it took her 26 hours to get home over Christmas. Are flight attendants also stranded? 
yes, flight attendants have been stranded. That Not only have they been stranded, but they've been left to try to contact crew scheduling for hours on end. We have flight attendants sending us their screenshots of how long they've been on hold. We have anywhere from three to 17 hours of having to wait on hold just to find out what your next assignment is going to be, what your next um, flight needs to be, where your hotel assignment might be. I mean, that is really despicable to have to wait that long. It's unconscionable. But what is the problem, Len? What is going on with Southwest? Why is this happening? It's, it's been a reluctance over many, many years for Southwest Airlines not to invest properly in its IT systems. In fact, TWU Local 556 has indicated over the years that they need to to invest in this money, that we're going to come up with one of these major disasters like that's just happened. And it's happening over and over again. And each time it gets worse and worse and worse. And as you can see, now it's created a huge implosion that's completely unacceptable. So Lynn, just so I understand this, in other words, Southwest does not have an up-to-date phone system. It doesn't have up-to-date IT equipment, the other airlines have outpaced it in terms of modern technology. Is that the problem? There's IT systems that that Southwest Airlines uses that are unique to Southwest Airlines, and they would be able to reschedule the operation when massive cancellations occur. However, um, and our CEOs have reported to us, a CEO has reported, and our COO has reported to us that they can't keep up with the demand. They the, these systems can't do things quickly enough, and we've been promised that they're putting enough into the systems that they've spent enough money, but they started so late in trying to update these systems that even all those efforts really haven't come out to make any reasonable changes. The the CEO of Southwest Airlines tonight put out a statement. He said, I have nothing but pride and respect for the efforts of the people of Southwest who are showing up every day uh, in every way. Um, I'm apologizing to them daily and they'll be hearing more about our specific plans uh, in the future. What do you want from him? I'm, we're so tired of apologies. We're so tired of of um, Southwest Airlines just getting through one major catastrophe and then going on to the next one and saying, oh, we're sorry again. We need to see an action plan. We need to see an investment. We need to know what um, people are going to be, uh, he's going to be using to uh, the best in the world technology that Southwest Airlines can buy should come and help us figure out what these systems need to be. And we also need to know when the go live date is going to be. It's also important for Southwest Airlines to remember that its uh, workers and its employees are the heart of the company. We are the ones who really helped make this company successful in the 90s and here today. And they need to start investing in their employees again like they used to. They've completely abandoned that. We have been in contract negotiations with them since 2018. It's pilots as well. And we're having to beg and plead for them to make the necessary changes for these infrastructures to be remedied. Well, I hope that he's listening. He's also invited on our program here anytime. He has so far declined our invitation. Um, But Lynn, it doesn't sound like what you're asking for is unreasonable. Um, Thanks so much for your time. And uh, we really hope that the flight attendants can get where they need to and get back to work uh, as effectively as possible as well. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. It's a company that has designed more than 900 power stations, thousands of miles of power systems. They also handle nuclear security issues, and they work with the Defense Department, and they've just been hacked. 
Who is targeting this country's energy grid? How vulnerable is our energy grid? All that is next. Okay, now a troubling story. Hackers stole data belonging to multiple electric utilities in this October ransomware attack on a U.S. government contractor that handles critical infrastructure projects across the country. This is according to a memo describing the hack that has just been obtained by CNN. The contractor is a Chicago-based Sergeant and Lundy. It's an engineering firm that designed more than 900 power stations and thousands of miles of power systems. And that firm also works with the Department of Defense, Energy, and other energy agencies to strengthen nuclear deterrence. So this news comes just days after an attack on four power substations in Washington state that left thousands of people in the dark on Christmas Day, as well as a number of other attacks on power stations across the country over the last few months. Joining us now to discuss this is Phil Mudd. Phil, thanks for coming back. Uh, it doesn't sound like yeah. these, I mean, does it sound like these are isolated incidents to you? No, I kind of look at this in a few categories. The first, the hardest to figure out is, you know, these attacks we've seen recently, sort of anti-government people, anarchists who don't like government, don't like big utilities. You go a step up and you get into criminal organizations who are conducting ransomware that is stealing stuff or shutting down a system and telling a company or a contractor they want millions of dollars to to, uh, get that system back up and running. I guess the thing I worry about when I see all these events going into this century is looking at the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians who've got to be reading U.S. newspapers and watching CNN and trying to understand how much they have might have stolen or compromised over the past decade and what they would do if they wanted. We really don't know the answer to that, Allison. I don't like that, Phil. I don't like that. I don't like hearing that because that's, that's I mean, just shutting down our electrical grid, we always hear that. It's sort of an abstract anxiety that we have. Hmm, maybe our electrical grid or our power grid is vulnerable. But it's starting to feel like I'm reporting on this a lot. It's starting to feel as though something's picking up pace with this. I think so. And I think as someone who worked in government for a long time, there's there's some things behind the scenes that would trouble me more. The first is if you're at the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, how do you plan for a massive outage that might be orchestrated by somebody like Russia or China? I'm not suggesting that will happen in the near term. I'm thinking about, for example, Ukraine, and if something unpleasant happens with the Russians in 24, 25, 2026, how do you plan for that? How do you deal with U.S. consumers who are going to lose power? We lost power in the house. I'm here in Memphis earlier in the week for 11 hours, and I'm going to tell you, it was freezing after 11 hours. And the second is, how do you coordinate not just within government, but within private companies that are going to be reluctant to share data about how they're vulnerable? How do you force those companies to say, I don't care if it's embarrassing. You're going to share that data because we've got to figure out how to address this. Well, you're the law enforcement genius. How do we protect against all of that? that, Yes, Phil, genius. Can we roll that tape again? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you surely there like you were in meetings where there was um, a plan, I hope, for this. Sort of. But I tell you, the problem here is and you see it in the case that you were talking about a moment ago. You're not dealing with the Defense Department or Homeland Security. You're dealing with a contractor or a subcontractor. You've got to have a requirement from the White House, for example, that those people have plans to respond to an event like this, that they are required to report it. And by the way, companies don't like reporting this stuff because it's not that great for the stock. When people outside realize that your company's vulnerable, you've got to have plans for dealing with private entities, contractors 
we're vulnerable. That is not easy for the government to do, to go out in the private sector and tell some relatively small company, here's what you've got to do to address that. People in this country don't like that, Allison. Yeah, definitely, because it sounds like this data breach happened in October, but CNN is just able to report it now. So I, I hear what you're saying. All right, Phil, I hope you have a lot of logs for the, the fire so that you you don't get cold down there in Memphis. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Thank you. And I'm happy to be a genius. I'll see you next time. <laughs> I, may, I may renege on that later, but we'll see. Okay. Meanwhile, a huge decision today from the Supreme Court, leaving thousands of lives in the balance. So much uncertainty. It's upending President Biden's plans for immigration. We have much more about what's happening at the border after this. Tonight, the Biden administration will not be allowed to let a Trump-era border policy expire. The Supreme Court says that Title 42 must remain in effect until the legal challenges play out, which could take until June. Title 42 is that measure that's allowed federal officials to quickly expel migrants, ostensibly because of the pandemic. More now from CNN White House reporter Priscilla Alvarez. Allison, this ruling is ultimately a victory for Republican-led states that sought to intervene in this case and block the termination of Title 42. Now, the White House responded to this order, saying that they will comply with it, but they also pointed the finger at Congress, saying it is on them to pass immigration reform. They also made their position quite clear, saying that, quote, Title 42 is a public health measure, not an immigration enforcement measure, and it should not be extended indefinitely. Now, since this has come down, there's already confusion along the border. Immigrant advocates and groups have been disseminating information to migrants on both sides of the border to try to convey what this means, which is ultimately that this public health authority that was invoked at the onset of the coronavirus pandemic will continue to remain in effect, meaning that officials can continue to expel migrants who they encounter at the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, legal learned the uh, attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union said that it is, quote, deeply disappointing. Republicans, on the other hand, pleased with the order, saying that it will prevent a surge of migrants. But ultimately, the White House making it quite clear that they will continue their preparations for the end of this authority whenever that may be. Allison. Priscilla, thank you very much for that reporting. Let's bring in now Sted Herndon. CNN political analyst and national political reporter at The New York Times, Paul Begala, CNN political commentator and Democratic strategist, CNN political commentator Scott Jennings, and Ron Brownstein, CNN senior political analyst and senior editor at The Atlantic. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here. Scott, I want to start with you because last hour you were saying basically that you think that the Biden administration has loused this whole thing up um, uh, or just not addressing what's happening at the border in any kind of effective way. What do you want President Biden to do? I mean, again, the the situation at the border is so, appears to be so overrun, so complicated. What today can President Biden do? Well, he said in his statement in the White House is saying that they think Republicans should work with Democrats. And I agree. And the Republicans who just took over the U.S. House unveiled a framework for immigration reform in December. It includes finishing the barrier system that started under Trump that Biden paused, recruiting and retaining our great Border Patrol agents, If you can't detain someone for the duration of their illegal stay here, we should turn them away. Asylum reform, targeting the cartels. There's an entire framework that Republicans laid out just a couple of weeks ago uh, that they plan to pursue. Now, will the Senate Democrats pick up on that? Will the Biden White House pick up on that? I want to see Joe Biden put his money where his mouth is. He says he wants bipartisan cooperation. 
the Republicans have a plan. They laid it out. Maybe that's a starting point. Paul, what's the, what are the chances that the Democrats would go along with how Scott just phrased it? Well, Democrats want a, a solution, or they, they want at least to address the problem. Republicans want chaos. They want chaos at the border because they believe it helps them politically. Ever since Donald Trump slithered down that escalator, they've been demagoguing immigration. There is a crisis at the border, though. There is. And I actually, the executive branch, President Biden in this case, doing everything he can. He's plussed up the border patrol. He's, he's adding even more agents now. They've stopped record amounts of fentanyl and record numbers of people. The courts are doing all they can. In fact, they're doing more than they're constitutionally allowed to do. Even Justice Gorsuch pointed that out today. They've gone beyond their role. Congress has to fix this. And the reason Congress hasn't fixed it is the Republicans don't want to. I know. Hold on. I'm sorry. I don't want, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to address what Scott said. Scott, I, I know the Democrats always say that that Republicans want this as a talking point and Republicans always say that Democrats don't show up at the table. But what about what Scott just said, that they've laid out this plan, but I don't think will would Democrats go along with with continuing the border wall? Would they go along with everything they, they, that Scott just said? They, they have the, the Democrats have been working on this for years, and it has been at every critical juncture of the Republicans that have tanked it. Now, look, there's some hope. It's not coming from the press release that Kevin McCarthy's uh, aides put out. It comes actually from the Senate side. Kirsten Sinema, who was a Democrat until about 15 minutes ago, uh, working with Tom Tillis, a North Carolina Republican. Uh, and it's, it's not comprehensive at all, but it's a good start. Here's what they would do. Increase Border Patrol security, increase security at the border, reform asylum, uh, which is really where a lot of the reason a lot of these folks are entering, and then clear a path to citizenship for these dreamers. It's not everything. But it's a good start. A lot of Democrats, Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, and others have joined on to this. The only Republican besides Tillis, who I know is on it, is Roy Blunt, and he's going to retire in a few days. Mm -hmm. Um, Ron, you've seen this movie many times over. What are your thoughts tonight? There's no secret Dakota ring here, Allison. I, I mean, I've been covering this since the early 1990s, since Prop 187. And the border is a problem that is at best managed, not solved. Uh, But to get a better handle on it, the ingredients of a solution have been the same for 20 years. Uh, More money for border enforcement and more money for the asylum system to clean up this huge backlog in asylum claims, some path to legal status for the people who are here illegally, and then something that deals with the future flow of workers after the, this previous decade, 2010 to 2020, was the smallest population growth in American history, except for the Depression. The Senate passed that kind of package in 2006 on a bipartisan basis with Mitch McConnell among those voting for it under George W. Bush. The Senate passed that package again, similar in 2013 on a bipartisan basis under Barack Obama with Marco Rubio, among others, voting for it each time. The Republican-controlled House would not take it up. And if we are going to find a true uh, solution that that more effectively controls the problem, those are the ingredients. That, that it's not like a mystery or that there's a, a hidden answer. In fact, even when Trump was president, the Senate Democrats offered him a deal to finish his border wall in return for DACA legalization. And it ran aground when Stephen Miller, another in the White House, demanded cuts in legal immigration, even amid the slowest population growth in any decade since, uh, except for the Depression. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to keep banging against each other, red states against the federal government, Democrats against Republicans uh, indefinitely 
until there is sort of an, an, an awareness that the only solution is one that is comprehensive and you can only get there with both parties doing it. Neither side can do this politically on their own. Instead, a new Congress starts next week. I mean, just because something hasn't worked for decades doesn't mean that it won't work. Is there... <laughs> Is there any appetite for this? I mean, Ron lays out the kind of mountain of, of kind of political will that would have to happen for this new Congress to take this up. And that's because the distance between where the Republican base is and where the Democratic base on this issue are is massive. And so polit- politically, there is just no real, real appetite yet to find that sense of common ground. And the people we should say that are hurt most for that are the actual migrants involved with the with the kind of chaotic ping ponging back and forth a policy, but we can't. This is a Republican Congress coming in that can't agree on the speaker yet to, to paper over the divisions within their caucus. There is there with an issue like immigration, which not only has divisions among the Republican caucus, but also among the Democratic one. It is a it, it is a real tough challenge to see the path forward for this politically. I mean, I think back to the Democratic primary years ago uh, in 2020 to even nominate Biden. And it's not as if those candidates were laying out affirmative immigration policies to, to, to the folks point in the panel. They have been running from this issue. And, and so that is because there's not a real political will there to do much of anything about it. Scott, I want to drill down on a couple of things that, that keep coming up that people offer as solutions. And you mentioned it, which is finishing basically a border wall. And then Democrats often talk about legal status for dreamers. How do either of those solve the 1.6 million asylum applications that are pending right now that are glutting the system? It's a seven-time increase in asylum cases over 2012. Three out of 10 of them are children. How do, let, let's start with yours, the border wall. How does, how does that stop the influx of people that are coming from countries like Nicaragua well, with you know, abject poverty and, and crime? Well, it doesn't fix the backlog in the system. What it does do, if you go ahead and complete the barriers like Arizona governor, outgoing governor Doug Ducey tried to do, it does stop people from walking across the border. I mean, you have people coming into the United States uh, across, you know, places like the Yuma Gap in Arizona. So that's one thing. Yeah, but that's not the big the, problem. The I mean, doctor- the big problem is the 1.6 million asylum applications that, that our system can't handle. I think they're all big problems. I think the I think the backlog's a problem, and I think the the daily influx is a problem. And I do think fixing the dreamers situation is also a good thing to do. But that also doesn't address the people who are showing up every single day. So there's multifaceted issues here, and all those things I think wind up in the discussion around a possible deal because it's what someone wants, or it's the it's the most important thing for some political constituency. So you wind up tacking it on, but. It strikes me that the most important thing you could possibly do is stop the influx today, get a handle on what we have in terms of the backlog and stop adding to it. And that, I think, is the fundamental disagreement between the parties. The Republicans want to put a stop to everybody coming in and being added to the asylum backlog. And the Democrats just say, well, let's just do the paperwork faster. And that is a huge gulf between the two parties. Hmm. Paul, um, wasn't it, it, you know, Scott's saying that he thinks that a, a wall would help. Wasn't there a time that Democrats supported a wall? Oh, a wall makes sense in some places and it's moronic in others. And that's what Mr. Trump didn't understand because he's Donald Trump. Uh, but, but Scott, brother, you're not quite right about this. Okay. I, I don't want to be mean, but the, the wall doesn't stop an asylum seeker. See, an asylum seeker is someone who has a who claims a well-founded fear of persecution. So she presents herself to the border patrol. She's not trying to avoid anything. She's not stopping at a wall. She's going to the gate. She's going to the to the border patrol and saying, "Here I am. 
take me in. It, and these are people fleeing murderous communist dictatorships. They're fleeing narco trafficker gangs that have taken over in, in many of these areas in Central America. The kind of folks, I mean, you'd have to shoot me if it was the only way to feed my family and to protect my children from these gangs or these communist dictators. So the, fundamentally, we have, to, we have to have security at the border. By the way, liberals have to say that. Join me, liberals. We have to secure the border. Now, conservatives have to admit that America needs immigrants and we cannot turn away. We're not going to rip children from their parents anymore the way Mr. Trump uh, did. And we can't turn away people who, who are going to get shot if they go home by either communist dictator. Yes, or, I hear you. I, I hear you, Paul. But let's be honest. I mean, I think Scott's point is that of the 1.6 million asylum applications pending, not all of them will be legitimate <laughs> asylum seekers. I mean, part well, of the, but, the problem right. with the glut. And I mean, obviously, people who are streaming here from Cuba and Venezuela have a lot to be afraid of, but they, we can't process that. We don't know if all 1.6 million right. are legitimate. And by the way, we might not know for years. It's taking, because of the backlog, it's taking like four and a half years but, to process some of this. That's, okay. that's a, a four, problem. Five year, and, and a wall won't fix that. More, more asylum judges will. Uh, faster adjudication, maybe even change the standards. Right now, the standard for decades yeah. has been, do you have a well-founded fear of persecution? Yeah. And that's always been a pretty sensible standard for America. But if we're being overwhelmed, but Congress has to change that. Joe Biden can't change it. And, and the Supreme Court can't change it. Congress has yeah. to write a new law if they want a new law. Ron, I'll give you, the, you last, know, and, and, the last word about, you know, as Ed was saying that he doesn't know that this Congress will have any appetite. Your thoughts? Well, look, I mean, Allison, I mean, the, the political logic is that all of these things have to be done and even all of them may not be sufficient. Uh, to fully control uh, the challenge at the border. But the only way to do it, as John McCain and Ted Kennedy recognized in 2006 and the Gang of 13 mm -hmm. recognized, uh, Gang of Eight in 2013, is for both parties to join hands and try to do it together because neither side can, can work through the coalition politics to do everything that has to be done if they have to do it alone. Mitch McConnell once voted for that. Marco Rubio once voted for that. Orrin Hatch, I think Chuck Grassley once voted for that. And if there is a way forward other than just pointing fingers and red states doing stunts like transporting migrants in the middle of the night and 20 lawsuits by red states to tie Joe Biden's hands on changing Trump's policies, that is the way forward. It, there is not a secret Dakota ring. We've seen the roadmap before. It's just a question of finding the political will to move in that direction. Okay, gentlemen, stick around. I have more questions for you on other topics because a lot's happening tonight, such as documents burned in a fireplace, QAnon talk, and why one witness said he felt he was threatened by President Trump. More revelations tonight from the January 6th committee transcripts. That's next. The January 6th committee releasing more transcripts tonight of key witness interviews, including one White House aide describing how Trump's former chief of staff would burn documents in the White House and may have kept some Oval Office meetings off the books after the 2020 election. We're back with Estad Herndon, Paul Begala, Scott Jennings, and Ron Brownstein. Okay, Estad, I don't know, burning documents in the White House, <laughs> that, that, I, I just don't think that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's Mark, I mean, that's 
Cassidy Hutchinson saying that she saw Mark Meadows do that, I think, dozens of times. Dozens of times, maybe once or twice a week. I mean, when you look through the scope of what the transcripts that were released today, you see this kind of movie-esque playing out, a, a, a dramatic drama, burned documents, dueling loyalties. But I also think you see uh, Hutchinson talk about how a far-reaching conspiracy had come in the White House. They mentioned the, uh, the involvement uh, of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene and possibly talking about QAnon. It shows the scope of just how uh, uh, much kind of chaos and, 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 and really kind of below the seal of president the conversation had become at that time. But it's also at this point expected because so much information has come out from this point of the January 6th committee. We know this about the former president. It remains shocking nonetheless. Yeah, the, Paul, the QAnon stuff, it never doesn't shock, frankly. So Marjorie Taylor Greene went into the White House, and here is uh, the testimony from the new transcript. Ms. Greene came up and began talking to us, this is from Cassie Hutchinson, about QAnon and QAnon going to the rally on January 6th. And she had a lot of constituents, she said, that are QAnon. And they'll all be there. And she was showing him pictures of them traveling up to Washington, D.C. for the rally on the 6th. There's more stuff that came out that Peter Navarro used to also bring in all sorts of crazy crackpot QAnon theories and try to hand them off to the vice president and the president. I mean, that's how close QAnon QAnon was in the White House, basically, Paul. Right. And, And why? Not because of Mark Meadows, not because of Marjorie Taylor Greene, not because of Peter Navarro, because of Donald J. Trump. He is a unique and distinct threat to the Constitution. This could have never happened. Scott Jennings worked for President Bush. I worked for President Clinton. It could have never happened in either party of any president in our lifetime. And so the solution is pretty clear. And and, and that is uh, Jamie Raskin, who is a member of that uh, January 6th committee and a constitutional law professor before he became a congressman, points out that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment allows we the people to ban someone who has committed insurrection against our country or tried to undermine uh, the free, uh, in this case, the, the, the uh, peaceful transfer of power, to ever hold office again. That is what they should have done when he was up for impeachment, uh, especially after the January 6th, 10 votes short. But it, this is what has to happen. Uh, either we the people got to vote him out anytime he keeps trying to run again, or and or he has to be, as Liz Cheney says, kept more than 100 miles from that Oval Office. But this is, we, we all focus on all these other characters, but this is about the organ grinder, not the monkey. Scott, there's more uh, tonight, and that is how Brad Raffensperger felt about that phone call uh, in which President Trump said he just needs to find 11,000, uh, yeah, however many more votes. So Brad Raffensperger says he was alleging, really accusing us of doing something illegal, something criminal. Mm-hmm. But I knew we followed the law. It was a hollow threat, but it was, I feel, a threat. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, that one stuck out to me because it strikes me that's going to be a key issue for the district attorney in Atlanta who's still looking at uh, bringing charges against Donald Trump. You know, this phone call is the one place in this entire ordeal where you actually have Donald Trump's voice on a, you know, in a meeting uh, trying to, to do something nefarious. And if Raffensperger says he felt like he was being personally threatened, uh, it strikes me that's a that's a a pretty, pretty big moment. Uh, if, if you're going to take somebody to trial over this, I, I would suspect that's going to be a huge piece of the evidence. Yeah, Ron, I mean, for somebody who felt personally threatened, he really held his ground. You know, he kept, as you'll remember from that phone call, he was saying the, the problem, Mr. President, is basically the facts aren't on your side. Yeah, 
Raffensperger's testimony, I read through it, was, was incredibly revealing on several fronts. One, it joins all of the other evidence that shows how often Trump was told that what he was saying was false and made up. I mean, it wasn't like uh, Trump did not get clear, the former president did not get clear indications that he was lying and that he was spreading lies. And, I, you know, the legal uh, analysts will tell you that is very important in terms of establishing his state of mind. But there was also a moment in the testimony where Raffensperger gave uh, uh, perhaps the most, you know, pointed, concise testimony on how Donald Trump operates. At one point, he's, he said that, you know, Trump has basically learned the lesson in life that if you intimidate people, you disparage them, you make up things about them, you get what you want. And, you know, there's there is the quote. And, and that in some ways is the is the summation of all of these thousands of, of pages. I would differ with Paul only in one respect. Um, Trump was certainly the driving force behind all of this, but he could not have done it alone. There were dozens, really even hundreds of local elected officials and members of Congress who supported him in various ways in trying to overturn the election. The committee chose not to really stress that. Like Biden in 20, they chose to prevent present Trump as a unique threat. But the question of whether there's going to be accountability for the others who willingly enlisted in this crusade, I think is one that's left very much open even after the filing of this final report. Scott, what do you think the DOJ is going to do? Oh, I get the feeling he's going to be indicted. I mean, they've come a long way. They've got a lot of information. Uh, you know, they also have the, the parallel Mar-a-Lago issue going on. They raided his house. I mean, there's <laughs> to not do anything at this point strikes me as is really unlikely. On the point Paul made about the 14th Amendment uh, or defeating Trump in an election, it strikes me that the way to banish him from the political process is for the voters to actually do it. And um, I think Republicans are on their way to doing that. It strikes me that the party is ready to move on. They don't want to do this a third time. This is the point of primaries to determine the direction of your political party. And I think Republicans are on the path to getting this done. I think to do it by other means would always leave open the possibility that, well, you know, I would have come back if they'd only let me run again. So I think I think this is for the voters and for actual Republicans to do this job this time. Okay, Uh, we shall see. Gentlemen, thank you very much for all of that. So it just keeps getting worse and worse in Buffalo. The death toll has gone up. Again, and residents, of course, are still trying to dig out. Now there's fears of flooding coming at the end of this week because temperatures will rise by then. So we're going to get the latest from a Buffalo official at what's happening this hour. The extreme winter weather this past week is now responsible for 56 deaths nationwide. 31 of those deaths alone in Erie County, New York. That's the home to Buffalo. Take a look at this, a state police forklift freeing cars and trucks from the snow and the ice there uh, that was battered by more than four feet of snow in the blizzard. And of course, the danger is not over there. You can see that there's just so many accidents. Uh, So with us right now is Mitch Nowakowski. He's a city council member in Buffalo. Uh, Councilman, thank you so much for being here um, with us tonight. So tell us what's the status in Buffalo? What is your biggest need tonight? Yeah, it's been five days of really a natural disaster that's hit the city of Buffalo and Western New York, and it's actually claimed almost 33 lives um, of Buffalonians and Western New Yorkers, and we're expecting that number to rise as we dig ourselves out of this situation. But we are making progress, and I want to be able to articulate that this evening um, at the highest of 
uh, the blizzard, we had 30,000 residents that were without power. And as of just a few moments ago, we're down to 485 residents. But I really want folks to know that numbers sometimes can be sanitized and that numbers 485 people are 485 people that need oxygen, need CPAPs, um, need machinery for dialysis, um, to charge their wheelchairs, you name it. So restoring power to these homes is absolutely critical in the response um, to residents. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad yeah. that you've um, brought that home for us because it's not just like sitting in the dark, it's life and death stuff. And so we thought that the death toll in your um, area in Erie County was 31. Are you saying that it is now tonight 32 or 33? Yeah, almost 33 to confirm. Yeah. And basically the way that breaks down is there, we have one death from an EMS delay, three from shoveling, um, three, I guess, trapped in a vehicle, seven from lack of heat, and then 17 people were found outside. Do you know anything about these cases? Were these people who were trying to get somewhere to shelter or help? Uh, one of the instances was actually my neighbor four doors down from me um, that neighbors found yesterday uh, with his family under a snow pile. It's been catastrophic um, to see the human impact that this is having. Um, but this also, you know, we don't know just yet because we don't want to speculate, but it could be folks that were driving during a, snow, uh, a travel ban um, where you know, whiteout conditions where maybe somebody was driving. That's why having a travel ban is so critically important and it's so important for people to adhere to it. And County Executive Mark Polencars um, has urged Governor Kathy Hochul to bring in state troopers um, to do traffic control in the city of Buffalo um, so that we can do uh, snow removal appropriately and quickly because of the life and death uh, uh, happenings that, that, that could potentially happen. And I also want to just stress that uh, what we're facing in the city of Buffalo is different from snow uh, removal to just snow plowing. We need to snow remove, meaning we need equipment where there's one truck um, driving and then another forklift putting the snow into the truck and then removing it um, from the street because we have old historic dense one-way streets and in, in, in very dense neighborhoods and we don't have anywhere to put it. Um, which leads to, uh, with temperatures rising, a potential of flooding in neighborhoods. Yeah, no, we've heard that, that there, you're, you're so far from being out of the woods in terms of the weather because you'd think that it is, um, you know, a godsend that things are going to melt soon, but that it could be really um, catastrophic flooding. But when you talk about your neighbor who died four houses down from you, uh, he was found in a snowbank with his family or he, can you, do you know any more of the circumstances? Uh, no, a, a, another neighbor had discovered the body and had called the authorities. Um, and it just so happened that um, his family um, had came out when neighbors had heard about this um, and unfortunately had to identify the body there. Gosh, that's so awful. I mean, and as we said, there's, you know, 30, almost you say 33 of those experiences. Everyone has um, just a horror story. We've heard of so many people who got stuck and thought they were going to die. Um, and and so what is being done? I mean, when you say that you're looking for a place to put all of the snow, what's the solution to that tonight? 
Yeah, it's really working um, hard with DPW to make sure that we have locations to properly move the snow. I have a few in my districts that we've identified um, to properly remove because they're far away from residences. And, you know, in cities, there's high density in some neighborhoods, low density in some of them. So it's really identifying those spots to appropriately move them. Um, because, you know, if we build a snowbank that's 10 feet high, it can really hinder visibility uh, for vehicular traffic. So uh, what is happening now is the Department of Public Works is doing a great job in identifying locations, uh, safe locations to pile all of this snow. Councilman, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, Mitch Nowakowski, thanks so much for telling us what's happening in Buffalo. Um, take care of yourself and we will check back with you. Um, as we've heard, there are heroes in this disaster, like Shaquille Jones, who helped save a baby boy in Buffalo who relies on a ventilator, which failed 12 hours after the power went out. Shaquille is with us tonight, along with the little boy's mother, Shahida Mohammed, and her husband, Michael Brown, who asked for help on Facebook. So guys, thank you so much for being here. First, let's just start. Um, Shahida, how is your baby doing? He's doing amazing. Thank you so much. Well, Shaquille, I hope you heard that. And I hope you uh, take some pride that the baby is doing well. But first, let me rewind the tape. So, Shaquille, first, in this snowstorm, you yourself were trapped in a car. Is that right? Yes, I was trapped in a car um, with my family for 18 hours. And what was happening during those 18 hours? Um, we were calling the police to get help, and um, they were saying, they're coming, they're coming, they're coming. And at the last moment, when the snow was up to our windows in the truck, um, at that moment, we had to make a decision. Either we were going to live or die. Um, and we called them again, and finally they told us, we are not coming. That's what they told me. And um, did you think that you were going to die at that point? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, yes. Um, me, my mother, and my sister, um, and two nieces were in the car. My sister had a broken leg with crutches. Um, so we actually had to climb out the window and walk in a lot of snow um, in minus um, 70, uh, 17 degree weather at 80 miles an hour for about 20 minutes. By the time we got to the hospital, I couldn't feel my legs, my fingers. Um, we had frostbite um, and the doctor said maybe another minute or so, we, I probably would have died, yes. Oh, Shaquille, that is an incredible story. And yet with all of that, with your near death experience, you then decided to go back out into the storm and help people is that what happened um yes that is correct after um i figured that god gave me another chance at life um i have to try to save others um because the police and you know they told me they weren't coming so i can only imagine what they told others um so yes i went back out um i went home i had a guy came and saved me and I went home and I told my family, unfortunately, I'm going back out. Um, I went back out and I've been out for four days straight ever since then. 
and um, I've helped maybe over 500 to 1,000 people. <laughs> um, bleeding this is, inc- and this sick is and- incredible. You, I mean, it's just astonishing what you've been doing and what you've been able to do during this. And one of the people that you saved, as we've mentioned, is Shahida and her son. So Shahida, tell us the situation. Tell us what was happening in your house while all of the storm was hitting. Well, on Friday morning, at 11 a.m., our power went out. Um, as you guys know, Major's on the ventilator. He's on the Trilogy Evo. So it was approximately 12 hours. So around 11 o'clock Friday night, his ventilator died. And that's when I got on social media. I had already been calling 911, fire fire departments, everyone at, at 11 a.m., um, National Grid at 11 a.m. Just to like, because, you know, like, we can't go without power. So I was calling everyone. They kept saying they were going to send ambulance. Then um, we got nothing. So I had no choice but to turn to social media for help. Um, A lot of my stats went viral. The police actually got angry because my stats went viral. And so many people were calling for me. When I started calling back, they actually started telling me that I was from Facebook. Oh my so. gosh. But Shahida, so so you put it out. What what was the message that you put out that everybody responded to? What did you say? Um, I said we have no power and I have a baby on a ventilator. And it went from there. And so Shaquille, did you see that message? Um, yes, I did. And once I did see it, um I dropped everything I had gone and I rushed right to her. And when you got there, what did you find? Um, I knocked on the door. Actually, on my way up the hill, it was a guy coming from her house, and he said that she didn't need help. And in my mind, something said that that can't be right, that that's not right. So I walked through about maybe six or seven feet of snow, and I got to her front door, and I said, you know, I'm here. Do you need help? And she said, yes, please. And I'm guessing the other guy didn't have the right equipment. He wanted to um, use a sleigh to get a baby on a ventilator um, to the hospital. And that 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 wasn't going to work. So I was in three about three trucks and with the help of my friends and um, and other people that showed up after I was there, we were able to get her out and get her to my vehicle and rush her to electricity um, while I'm pumping the baby walking through the snow. So as I'm doing that, I'm, I'm trying to do this at the right speed so the baby won't take more breaths than it has to. Um, so he won't cough and, and stop breathing. It was something I've never ever imagined doing in my entire life. Ever. Yeah, it sounds very intense. Shahida, what do you want to say to Shaquille? I just want to thank him. Um, I've already told him he was my angel. Um, after so many hours of bagging, um, we were so tired. We were cold. He was he was literally sent from God. And I just want to thank him. Well, that's a beautiful story, you guys. It is really an inspirational story on Christmas, you know, Christmas week to hear about this. Shaquille, we all need a Shaquille in our neighborhoods uh, to just be at the ready in case any of us need help. So thank you all really very much for sharing the story with us. And we're so glad that the baby is safe tonight. Thanks for being thank here. Thank you.
Thank you. Wow. All right. Meanwhile, Congressman-elect George Santos, who claimed he never said he was Jewish, he said he was Jew-ish, is making things even worse for himself in a heated interview tonight. We'll tell you what he's saying now. GOP Congressman-elect George Santos now admitting to lying about everything from his work experience to his education to his religion. Democrats are calling for an investigation, but on the right, silence from Republican leadership. Santos says he does not plan to step down, and tonight he directly addressed his now debunked claims that he has Jewish heritage. My heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic. I think I've gone through this. Even I've not not being raised a practicing Jew. I've always joked with friends and circles, even with in the campaign. I'd say, guys, I'm Jewish. Remember, I was raised Catholic. I'm even more confused. Back with us now, Estead Herndon, Scott Jennings, Ron Brownson, Norm Eisen. Um, Estead, what, where does this go? Yeah. What happens when he gets to Congress? Will he be able to serve his full term, even though he lied to his voters? I mean, it, it, it seems as if that way, because this is kind of an unprecedented situation from parties to media. Uh, I'm going to shout out my Times colleagues who have led on this story. I mean, everything about his history, his identity, his biography seems to be a lie. It stretches from the kind of funny, small lies or, or, or something that would seem uh, a kind of just like normal political embellishment to things that were core to his campaign promise, to his Jewish so-called identity, which has turned out to be a falsehood. I mean, there is nothing about him that seems to be true at this point, but there is not really a recourse or precedent for that steps going forward. Republicans have not responded to Democratic calls to really step up on this. And they really don't have an incentive to at this point, unless the Republican voters start turning. We're still in the early stages of this crisis. Scott, what should Republicans do about this? Well, I think he's probably going to take office and then immediately he should be referred to the Ethics Committee. I think there could be financial filings that need to be looked into. But I think what we have to have here to restore some integrity to the political process is a bipartisan condemnation of people who make up out of whole cloth their entire life story. I mean, imagine someone who, I don't know, claimed to have been raised in a Puerto Rican community, appointed to the Naval Academy, arrested with Mandela, finished in the top of his law school class when, in fact, he cheated in law school and finished at the bottom, claimed to have been a civil rights activist who was arrested multiple times, claimed his house was burned down in a lightning strike. Imagine if someone like that, say, I don't know, ascended to the presidency because that's what's happened. You've got a president who has made up huge chunks of his life story, just like Santos, and the people who are mad about Santos, and by the way, I'm mad about it because it makes Republicans look bad, seem to have no care that the president has done the same thing. Ron, your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, look, I think the main thing here is that uh, uh, it reminds me of the most famous literary put down in history. You know, Mary McCarthy said of Lillian Hellman, every word she ever wrote was a lie, including and and the I think that's the kind of case we're in with Santos. So my main conclusion is we're not done yeah. with the uh, with the uh, you know mis with the misleading and false statements. And there is the possibility that he uh, it, the question of where he got his money from that he lent to the campaign, whether he was inaccurate on his financial uh, disclosures. Those are crimes. Those can be crimes. Norm can explain that better than I. Uh, it's not really only an ethics issue. It, there may be a legal exposure there. Uh, Joe Biden has has uh, you know uh, has has certainly gotten his share of. Uh, biographical and other details wrong over the years, but I don't think there's anything quite as concentrated that we've ever seen like this 
uh, maybe other than what Mary McCarthy said about Lillian Hellman. Hmm. Um, Norm, uh, is, is this illegal? I mean, aren't there laws? What is the recourse for this? Uh, there are serious legal questions, Allison. We'll see what the answers are. I suspect he's going to be investigated. You have somebody who lied about his biography. He lied about his uh, uh, income. He lied about his jobs. He lied about his family being in the Holocaust. That was particularly offensive to me as the child of Holocaust survivors. Uh, what an insult. But when you lie about over $700,000, if he did, and you file forms with Congress and with the Federal mm -hmm. Election Commission, if those numbers also have any element of fabrication to them, yes, there are potential federal crimes. There are state crimes, I think, and there is the House Ethics Committee. So I think a variety of people are going to say, hey, are those financial figures lies also? We don't know the answer yet, but boy, there's not a lot of reason to uh, trust what he's put down on those forms. I think we can all agree this is not over yet. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, next, Miami's quarterback is in the NFL's concussion protocol for the second time this week. So who is supposed to be protecting the players? Why does this keep happening? That's next. A star quarterback is recovering from his second health scare in three months. Tua Tungabailoa of the Dolphins has been placed in the NFL's concussion protocol again, this time after playing an entire game on Sunday, raising new concerns about the league's safety measures. Now, in September, the quarterback was sacked in a game against the Cincinnati Bengals and ended up lying motionless on the field before being taken away by a stretcher. I'm joined now by CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan and Ephraim Salam, a former NFL player. Great to have both of you here. Ephraim, I want to start with you. When you watched that game and when you saw what was happening with Tua, could you tell something was wrong? What, what are your thoughts tonight? No, the, the, the past game we just played, you, you really couldn't tell because you don't know uh, unless you see some physical uh, glazed over eyes or, or stumbling. You, you really don't know when a person is suffering from uh, head trauma. Uh, but the first game that this all started, uh, it, the game he had against Buffalo, which was a big-time divisional game earlier in the year, uh, when he slammed his head against the ground and, and got up and stumbled and no one took him out of the game, they allowed him to come back in the game the second half. That was my biggest problem. Uh, because four days later, we all witnessed on Thursday Night Football him playing against the Bengals and those horrific images of him laying there uh, motionless with his fingers contorted. I mean, that's an image that is going to resonate in, in, in people's minds and in, in viewers and fans' minds for a long time. So now to have this, this happening, it sounds like a compound situation to where some guys respond differently to, to concussions. Some guys can get a concussion and, and then move on and, and be fine. And others, similar to Tua, have lingering, long-lasting effects. Yeah. And so, Christine, should he have been playing still? You know, I, I think they should shut him down for the rest of the season. Two more games, potentially the playoffs. It's a it's a key moment in, in the season. Obviously, you want your star quarterback, but he's 24 years old, as you know, Allison, and he's got his entire life ahead of him. And his health is is and, and his especially his brain uh, and what can happen, as we've seen in the NFL, it, that's so important that a couple of football games it would seem meaningless by comparison. 
But I think what Ephraim is saying is, is of course, correct, that there's a history here. Uh, this entire season, it seems like, from September now to December, we're talking about Tua and head trauma, or potential head trauma. He's now been in the concussion protocol twice. This is incredibly troublesome. And I am wondering why the Dolphins staff, when they saw that hard hit, it's an army of assistant coaches uh, in the press box, on the, the sideline. Uh, everyone's watching every moment. Is there no one going, wait a minute, we just saw him hit his head hard. Even if he's looking okay, we know what happened in September. Why are we not more concerned? And why did it take a full day before the world started to hear about this and before he started to feel comfortable enough to say that he had symptoms. And Christine, do we know the answer to that question that you just posed? Why they weren't moving with more alacrity to help? The the coach of the team, uh, Mike McDaniel, said that he cares very much and that he didn't notice anything at that point. Um, obviously, they said they didn't notice anything. And even the NFL experts are saying that at that moment, there was nothing to alarm them. And I guess I would look at the breadth of the season and say, use your brains. We know this problem. We know from the concussion movie, yeah. this has been a decade of conversation, at least in the NFL, the tragedy of the loss of life of the suicides by some of these men so troubled, uh, their brains uh, so uh, damaged that they have killed themselves. Yeah. And maybe you should be, at, you know, and maybe err on the side of caution. So yeah. I think the answer is they felt things were okay. And it's a big football game on Christmas Day, Allison. But Obviously, many of us would say, boy, that was the wrong decision to make. Ephraim, what do you think about the safety protocols? Does anything need to be changed? Yeah, well, you know, when you're in the thick of it, when you're playing as a player, there's nothing you want more than to be there for your team, especially playing at the quarterback position. Uh, you never want to let them down. Every game means something, especially for the Miami Dolphins and any other team in the playoff race. Uh, a team that's been much maligned and, and not had the success that they've wanted. They finally have found their quarterback of the future, and he wants to play. The problem is sometimes you have to protect the players from themselves. Yeah. But there's a lot of money involved here. We're talking about playoff games, playoff tickets, positioning, uh, bonuses. All of these things are, are in play. And if you're not really looking then you won't see the symptoms either. You won't see the red flags and and maybe want to step in too. You have to really be looking. And I think that's what the independent neurologist um, is for that the NFL has brought in. But we've seen that that uh, that position fail to uh, in particular uh, before. Yeah, gosh, you make such a great point about all the disincentives for actually saying something's wrong. Uh, Ephraim, Christian, thank you both so much. Great to talk to you. And thanks to all of you for watching. Absolutely. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.